This is episode 39, Female Founders Edition with Ashia Karani. Welcome to Sophia on Earth. I'm your host, Sophia. I'm a coach, entrepreneur, and yoga teacher, and I help women lead from their feminine in their relationships and in business. On this podcast, we talk about what it means to be human and how each of us gives the human experience meaning and makes it work for them. Connect with me at sophiaonearth.com or via Instagram at sophiaonearth and let me know how you are making the human experience work for you. Today's guest is Ashia Karani. Ashia is a curious problem solver, builder, and storyteller who is always seeking the intersection of profit and purpose. She founded a global e-commerce brand that designs sustainable activewear for Muslim women. In this episode, Ashia and I talk about how wearing hijab impacted Ashia's life, starting a business as a curious problem solver, what for-profit businesses can learn from the non-profit world, and small changes to live a more sustainable lifestyle. Hi, Ashia. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sophia. Thank you. It's so nice to reconnect and be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. Really, really beautiful. And as as we're starting out, I would love for you to tell us who you are without using your job title or where you went to college or what you majored in. Just who are you without any of the accolades? <laughs> oh, that's such a good uh, opener. It's a good description. Um, yeah, so my name is Arshia Karani. I go by Arshia and, uh, or Arshi. And um, let's see, so many things. Um, I am a, an old millennial. I'm coming to that realization. Highly, strongly, strongly identify as that now. Um, but yeah, let's see. I am a South Asian Muslim woman in my 30s. And um, I would say I am a curious uh, explorer of the world. And um, I'm a it took me a long time to identify as this, but I really do identify now as a storyteller and problem solver. Um, I really love, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's personal or professional, I love hearing different uh, perspectives from people. And I love um, really asking questions and getting um, getting deep with people to understand what their experience is. Um, and I, I love taking that information and um incorporating it into my daily life in some way or um, solving it on a bigger level, um, often professionally. <laughs> mm, I love that. Why would you say it took you a while to identify as that? Yeah, for some reason, it sounds, it seems kind of both like arrogant and uh, like generic sometimes I feel because I think a lot of times people, you know, for example, when you look at job descriptions, people always be like, I want a problem solver. I want a storyteller. Um, mm. I think that that's part of it. But I do think that, you know, I think that as I get older, especially, I realized that kind of some of those basic tenets of, that we were taught when we were kids, just like 
be nice to people, ask questions, like understand their experience, be empathetic. Um, I really do think that those are the things that matter most. And I think we saw a lot of that during the pandemic of just like, we really did see like people's stories, right? We saw people's stories come to life, like, you know, in, in so many ways, like even, you know, influencers on Instagram all of a sudden were like not wearing makeup and we're just like hanging out and making sourdough bread, just like the rest of us. Right. And so, um, I think, um, uh, it's just like, when you really think about it, like at the, at the core of everything, there are certain things that tie every human together. And, um, I don't know, I guess when I, when I say I identify as those things, like as a problem solver and as a storyteller, I realize that that's like, those are really the things that give me a lot of joy and passion and keep me going. Um, and so I think, uh, I know that we, that I shouldn't be talking about my, like what I've done before yet, but I think, you know, for a period of time I was running my own business and I think I really like, I loved it because I stepped into that and I was able to tell stories, um, in a way that I wanted to tell them. And I want, and I was able to tell stories about people that I cared about and that like communities that resonated with me. And so it was the first time that I really was like, Oh, this is like, this is like a, this is a thing that I am and that I'm, that I can kind of like proudly proclaim about myself. Love it. Um, so I want to share about how we met, uh, which kind of gives people a little bit more insight into where you went to um, college and where you went to grad school, uh, which is we both went to NYU. I think you also got your bachelor's at NYU, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, I went there for grad school and we met at this event uh, about headscarves. And I remember like one of my classmates, he said, you should come to this event with me. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, you know, like at, at NYU, they have a lot of kind of events in the afternoon. And I was always really curious about headscarves. Um, I grew up uh, Christian, so I grew up, my mom is a pastor, so I grew up religious. Um, but obviously, headscarves are not part of my religion. So I was always like, curious to understand and feel like people have a lot of questions. And from your share, on this like panel, I was like, Oh, I get it. You know, because and you can you can share yourself, um, you know, about uh, how you feel about it. But what I what really like I got from it is I can tap into like the sense of devotion um, that I have as part of my religion and uh, my spirituality. And what I heard or what dropped in for me was that is your way of being devoted. And I was like, my God, that makes so much sense. And that was so beautiful. Like literally it was like a pivotal moment in my life. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, what it means for you to wear a headscarf. Yeah. Wow. That, that's such a, um, that's so cool. I mean, for, for context, this event was like, what, at least like eight years ago, at least, if not more. Um, think about like when, when I finished school. And so, uh, it's, it's really cool and really humbling. I think that to hear that you remember that moment and that it's, um, and I think you said it right. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, even when you first asked me like who I am, I think being South Asian, being a woman and being Muslim are kind of the top three, um, factors of my life. They, they're, they're how I identify, they impact, I think, they're the strongest parts, I think, of my identity. Um, and so uh, 
I have been wearing um, a hijab, which not all Muslim women wear, but I've been wearing a hijab or headscarf for over 10 years now. And um, yeah, I think you said it exactly right. I think for me, it is a day over day way, way to um, identify as a Muslim and to be devoted in some way. And I think, um, you know, I think it for me, it really comes back to, I think my interpretation of Islam is really that it's about self-awareness and it's about awareness of God. Um, so because of that, I think by wearing a scarf every day, for me, it's a way that every single day I'm doing for a higher entity, for a higher purpose um, that isn't just for me, right? And I'll, I'll say very honestly, like I've been wearing hijab for more than a decade. Um, and while it is like really routine for me now, it still can be challenging, right? It's like some days I just really miss like wearing a t-shirt and having my hair in a ponytail, right? And um, sometimes it's obviously easier to not be wearing it, but I think it is the thing that makes it both beautiful and challenging is that every day it's a step towards prioritizing my faith and my belief in God over my individual wants and needs as a person. Mm. That's so powerful to have that like as a practice always like, and to, to remember. Um, what made you make that decision? Because like there's like, you know, time prior when you didn't wear it. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a long story, but I'll try and say it shortly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, one thing I'll say is that I think the reason for everybody wearing it or not wearing it is really different. Mm. Uh, I also think that uh, reasons change and practice changes as well. So I think I can confidently say that when I first started wearing it, it was very different. My reasonings, my everything, um, my experience with it was really different from me wearing it now. Um, I was like 19 or 20 when I started. Now I'm in my early 30s. Um, and so it has been something in my adult life and the, the role of it, I think, has really changed um, over time. Um, and to answer your question more directly in terms of why I started, I think for me, I, I was kind of at this point, I was, I was in college and um, I was living in New York. My family was in the Midwest and uh, I was a practicing Muslim. But when I got to school, when I, I went to NYU for undergrad, as you said, and there's a huge Muslim community there. I mean, there's, there's um, both at NYU as a university, but also in the broader New York area. It was really easy to be a Muslim in a lot of ways because actually I grew up in Ohio and there were way less Muslims in Ohio or like where I grew up than in New York. And so in a lot of ways, it was really fun and cool to be a part of a big Muslim community because I had never experienced that as a kid. So all of a sudden finding a lot of likeness to myself was very fun for me. Um, and halfway through college, I uh, studied abroad um, for a couple of months in Italy and I all of a sudden was taken out of that environment. So I was around like no Muslims then. Um, there was one other Muslim kid in my program in the study abroad program. And I think I was just kind of going through this questioning for myself of like, okay, so when I was growing up, I was Muslim because my, you know, I was born Muslim, my family was Muslim. Um, in college, it felt cool and interesting to be Muslim because I was all of a sudden surrounded by a lot of these people who were just like me, who had similar experiences to me. Um, and then when I was studying abroad, I was like, well, now, now what is it? Like, what, what is my Islam without my family and without like a very big community? Um, and so I think it, it really was this period where I was like 
very aware of my differences based like from my peers um, and also without that support. And so um, I think there was just something at that time where I was like, you know, I, I really, I, it, it did for me, even when looking back on it, I'm like, wow, at such a young age, I, I kind of can't believe that I came to this conclusion at that time. But I really did feel like, you know, there's all these like pressures around me of like, even just basic things like partying and drinking and all these things, which you, which um, as a Muslim, I was not engaging with, but I was questioning as to why I wasn't engaging with those things. And so, um, yeah, I think there was just kind of this period of time where I was like, you know, I'm not engaging in those things. Why am I not? And if I'm not, then like, who am I? And I kind of just arrived at this conclusion that like, I need to feel grounded. And I need, I needed, I think at that time, a physical reminder of being Muslim um, that would kind of keep me, uh, like keep me within the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that, that that reason has really changed like over and over again. I think for me, that is not the reason that I keep wearing a headscarf. That's not the reason that I keep wearing hijab. But um, I think, you know, for me now, I think it's a little bit more of what I was saying at the beginning that I think, I mean, it's it, hijab has really, really molded me as a person. Um, and I think for me now, it is like more that level of like God consciousness on a on a day-to-day basis, um, as opposed to I think when I started wearing it at a younger age, it was a little bit more about like placing myself um, and keeping myself grounded uh, based on like external factors. If mm. that makes sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And how was it for you in the beginning when you started wearing a job? Yeah, it was really tough. Um, you know, I started wearing it and it was kind of all this like adrenaline of like, oh, this is like a new phase of my life. Um, but I think hijab is interesting because I think like people make a, like a lot of judgments about you when you wear it. And um, I think for me, I didn't really anticipate that. Like I knew it, but I didn't, I didn't quite process what that meant. And so um, it was tough. I mean, I think I went through a lot of changes even in my social groups. A lot of people were, you know, I was halfway through college. So a lot of the people that I had been interacting with regularly prior to that were like very thrown off and were like, what does this mean? Like, does this mean you're like a crazy religious person now? And I remember getting questions like that. And I was like, I don't think it does. Like, what does a crazy religious person mean to you? I don't, I don't know. Like, you know, cause I didn't feel all that different. Um, but you know, I think there were a lot of like or what I felt at least what I experienced was that there were a lot of judgments coming my way, both like socially um, and even from my family, just also trying like people in my family trying to understand like what's happening. Um, Also for context, this was like a post 9-11 world. Um, I also graduated during the recession and I was studying like econ and finance. So I think for my parents, there was a lot of like, we live in New York, it's post 9-11 we just went through the biggest recession. We're going through the biggest recession like of our time. Like, are you going to get a job? That was like a very, are you going to be able to get a job? That was like a really big question um, for my family of just like, you're, are you maybe making your life harder for yourself? So um, I think it was, it was quite challenging. And I'll say, I think like, <laughs> I, I learned a lot about myself. Like I think for better or for worse, like especially when I was younger, I definitely was like, oh, you're going to tell me I can't do something oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it real hard, (laughs) you know? And so I think for me, like that kind of stuff, even though a lot of it was coming from like a place of concern as opposed to like anything else, I was just like, oh, I'm going to prove you wrong. Like I'm going to 
do well in school and I'm going to get a job in finance and I'm going to like, you know, do all the things that I think even at that time, even though I hadn't anticipated it, I was like, how dare everybody be saying that a Muslim woman who wears a hijab cannot be successful in whatever way she wants to be successful. And I, I really kind of like took it upon myself to prove them wrong, which like, <laughs> again, for better or for worse, like <laughs> it, it is what it is. But I, I do sometimes think about it. Like, I, I think because I really dug my heels in, I think that, um, I think that that really like did dictate a lot of the experience that I had of being like, take kind of taking that pressure upon myself um to kind of like show show that muslim women can look whatever way and wear whatever and still be really free and really you know kind of again uh, prove those stereotypes of muslim women wrong um i don't know i think i'm rambling a little bit but yeah i, I think that that's that's really a lot of what my early experience of wearing hijab mm. was like yeah and you did you did prove people wrong yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did end up working in finance, so. I did, yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> it all worked out. Um, and then, as you mentioned already, you started your own business, Sukoon. So tell us a little bit about that. What what inspired the business and, and how did it start off? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I worked in finance. Um, I like to say I work in like, I worked in like happy finance. I uh, Sophia and I met because we were both in um, uh, an MPA program. So a lot of us studied like nonprofit management or public finance, public policy. Uh, and I always thought that I, I, I used that degree to go into affordable housing um, and affordable housing. People in affordable housing are like lifers because it's like full of acronyms and just like really crazy nuanced like loan structures and all this stuff and so people kind of like once you went affordable housing people just like live and die in affordable housing at least that's my perception of it um and I really thought that that would be me too I really liked you know I liked most aspects of my job I um you know the people were really mission driven we were working with some of the most distressed communities across America and working on finance to getting financing with like four projects um to alleviate housing crises, housing crises across the country. Um, and I said all that because like, I was quite passionate about it. Um, and how I, uh, I never imagined myself being a business owner and or deviating from affordable housing finance. I really thought that I would spend my life in that field. Um, and how I ended up starting my own business was in grad school, um, I was working full-time and uh, in school at night. Um, so I basically had no social life. And I joined this running club through uh, my grad school. And it was like my once a week way to like go hang out with people. And I used to work out, you know, a lot like on my own. And because I wear hijab, um, for those who might not be familiar, it's not just a headscarf. It's also uh, typically women who wear hijab are uh, covered in more ways. So kind of if you think like long sleeves, long pants, um, a little bit like looser fit. And that's that's not technical. I mean, people can wear hijab in different ways, but um, that's kind of like a broad loose understanding of it. And so I say that because it was very hard to find cute activewear that met those requirements. And so for me, I was wearing like baggy old t-shirts. And um, I even remember I'd wear, I grabbed a couple of my sister's old like maternity shirts because they were like longer and looser. Um, 
And basically I was, I looked frumpy and I felt very frumpy. And um, the reason that that mattered all of a sudden was because I used to just work out at the gym or go for runs on my own and I never really cared. But then all of a sudden this was like my one social outlet through grad school where we would go for a run and everybody looked kind of cute and their athleisure and athleisure was becoming a big thing. And then we would like go get coffee before or after, you know, get coffee or brunch or something after. And so all of a sudden I felt very conscious of like how I looked um, while wearing hijab and in these, like in this running group. Um, and through that group, after that group, I actually ended up like signing up for a couple of other runs, made some other friends through there and ended up signing up for a half marathon. Um, while I was running that half marathon, uh, I used to wear like a bandana, um, and I was running this race and it was raining and I was wearing like a running poncho and I had thrown my hood up over my, um, bandana because it was raining. And then at some point I like felt back to, I was like, oh, I feel like maybe it's moved or it's falling. And I touched, like I reached back underneath my hood and I realized my bandana had fallen off. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was about like midway through my half half marathon. And I just remember having this moment of like panic and stress because I was like, what if it stops raining? What if I get really hot? Like, what if I need to throw like take my like poncho off and like my hair is out. And um, I was just, I remember it just really like made the experience really stressful. Cause like I was trying to finish this race that I was really excited about, but I like was just really stressed about like, what's going to happen if I have, like, if I'm overheating or like, I can't finish or something. And so, um, I think the combination of like that feeling that I had had kind of like leading up into this run of like the social aspect of not looking cute. Um, and then really experiencing like the performance aspect of not having the right gear I was just like this sucks like I love working out and it kind of took me back to that moment of like why is it that like me like why is it that as a Muslim woman I can't just like experience the basic lifestyle that I want um and instead of being resentful of like my faith I was just like this is actually an industry problem you know and I remember I was talking with some friends after that race and actually one of my guy friends was like hey why don't you just like make your own running scarf. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Like I sit at a desk all day and like work, you know, I work at like, I, I like do financing deals, right? Like I don't, I I don't know how to do this. And he said it so casually. Um, and then he was like, no, I remember like, he basically told me the story of like somebody who he knew who like tried to do something like that and all this stuff. And I, it got me thinking. So, um, that's really how I started. And I can walk through kind of the, the story of how it happened, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of just started playing around with this idea and I lived in New York. So I, um, you know, I had this luxury of having the fashion district, um, you know, at my fingertips. And um, I just kind of started like playing. It really, that's how it started. It was like me solving a problem that I was facing for myself um, with absolutely no expertise or <laughs> skill set to be able to do so. <laughs> I love it. How did you get started? What were your first couple of steps? Yeah, the first thing I did is I, um, so yeah, the first thing I did is I really just went to the garment district and I looked up a couple of fabric stores and I just went and I was like, what would like a material look like that would work? Um, and that's pretty much the first thing I did. I bought a couple of, um, meters of things and, um, just started like, I came home and I started like playing around with it and just kind of cutting 
like rectangles out and seeing how they felt on my head. Um, and then I think like when I kind of got it started doing that after a little while, I, the next thing I really did was like just network. Um, and I think I wasn't aware that I was doing that at that time, but at, at that point I had already lived in New York for like eight years. And so I knew a lot of people doing like interesting things. And um, I really just started reaching out to anybody that I knew who had, who worked in like a small business or a startup in any capacity. Um, and then I just started reaching out to like anyone I knew who was like even adjacent to like the apparel space. Um, and again, I think for me, I didn't even really think about doing this as a business at the beginning. I think I was just like, how do things get made? Like, how do, you know, I think I was just like really curious about like, how does somebody make something? Mm. Like we take all these things for granted, at least I did. Like mm. I would, I never thought meaningfully about how my clothing gets made, how anything gets made. Like how does a shirt get made? How does a bag get made? Like we never think about it, but we interact with these items all day, every day. Um, and so that's really like what the process was for me. And I think there was just so much knowledge exchange at the beginning, or not even exchange. I don't think I was really contributing much. I was just like furiously taking a lot of notes and like asking questions. But um, I think it was, it was a really cool experience because all of a sudden, you know, I, I was telling you, like, I loved affordable housing and I loved my job, um, my day job, but this became like a really fun way to learn. Like all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like I thought I was like such a badass and I like work, you know, I have this job, blah, 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 blah. But like, I was like, wait, there's so many things that I don't even know about that I've never cared to know about. Um, and it really opened my eyes to like, I, like, we don't even know what we don't know. And I, I think that that's been now ever since like that time in my life, like, I'm just like, we, even now I'm like, we don't know what we don't know. We, there are things that we are just never going to know. And the only thing that we can keep doing as people who grow is like ask questions and try to understand things that we don't know. And talk by talking to people, we get exposure to all the different things that are happening in the world that like are not in our purview. Yeah. I love that. And then eventually you did like turn it into a running business. And how was that? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it took a while to kind of get from that, like a stage to like launching a business, but, um, it was amazing. I mean, the whole journey, it was like, you know, I think <laughs> finally enough, I do think founders have to be a little bit like delusional and like what, what they or we can accomplish. Mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely do identify as a founder, um, deeply. And I think like, you know, once you, for me, I remember like, you know, I did all these informational meetings. I was like playing with fabric at home. Um, I actually started the the brand or the business, I think like with a, I, at that point, you know, it was just a project and I started it with a friend. So I wasn't doing everything um, solo, but um, you know, as businesses grow, you know, pretty soon he, he was like a guy friend and he was kind of helping me out. And, you know, he was just like, this is more your thing. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I think there was a period of time where I was just like, oh, okay, like this could be something. I remember, you know, I eventually ended up making my first prototype. Honestly, my mom and my grandmother are excellent sewers. And so I was doing a lot of like experimentation at home, or, sorry, in New York. And then one weekend I came home or a couple weekends I came home and I started talking to my mom about it. And I was like, what do you think? Like, how can, how can like, not just fabrics, but like, how can something like stay on your head while you're like in so much movement and all this stuff? So my mom and my grandmother, I remember one time, um, uh, 
one weekend just like sat there with me for like two days straight and like just designed a prototype sewed it and I think I remember like I flew back to New York that night from Cleveland and I remember I went for a run and I wore that prototype and I was like oh okay this is something like this can be something um and so yeah I think like you know it was it was definitely took took some time but I ended up launching so I think like from 20 to 15 2015 to 2016 I was kind of in development for about a year and then in 2016 um I uh launched this uh, Kickstarter campaign um, just to see if there's any viability. Honestly, at that time, there were no activewear scarves, like very, very few. I, I'm never going to say that we were the first to market because they did exist. Um, but as a U.S. consumer, they were all international brands. Um, they were really expensive and um, they were all kind of small. And I honestly, I had ordered like every single one of them and they were all like, <laughs> in my in my perspective, as like, a millennial consumer, um, they were like not cute, <laughs> and also like not really functional. I think a lot of what I felt was that, you know, I was somebody who, and still like I do a lot of workout classes. Like I really generally, like genuinely enjoy being active, and so it felt like a lot of those products had not really been tested for people who actually are doing real workouts. They're they were more just like a jersey performance fabric that was kind of like cheap quality that like you could call an active scarf like they weren't really like solving the problem mm. to me I really felt like nobody had really thought about it um had thought about solving the problem and like really testing it for actual women who are really active um and so we ended up launching a kickstarter in 2016 um and it was like this wild experience because it was the summer of um the Rio Olympics and that was the first time that an American woman who wore hijab, it was Ibtahaj Muhammad, um, had qualified for uh, the Ameri the US team. And so the reason that was relevant was because there was a lot of buzz around the first US hijabi female athlete being on this team. And so we as a brand who were launching a product, right in, right in line with that, um, got tons of press. Like our Kickstarter did super well, I think partially because of that, we ran the campaign, like. I spent no money advertising it. I literally just, we spent money, we spent like under a thousand dollars doing all of our samples and all of our production for the video and stuff. And then everything else was organic. So I would sit there and like, literally, I had never done anything like this, but I would sit there and like, literally just write out my story in a million different ways and like tweet out, tweet out reporters and like write like short paragraphs, write long paragraphs or long, long form um, versions of my story and pitch it to reporters. Like I would just email them and DM them. Um, and one day it got picked up by a HuffPost reporter on the religion um, beat, if you will. And from there, it just kind of like went viral. Um, we got picked up then within three, we didn't even have a website. All we had was our Kickstarter. And within like under three months, Definitely, I think maybe under six months, we were picked up by like Al Jazeera twice, like everything, BuzzFeed, Upworthy, um, Huffington Post Religion, then HuffPost. Um, we had like a feature in Allure, like it was just, it was crazy. I mean, I didn't even know what to do because like we didn't have a website. All we had was our Kickstarter thing. And then I was like, oh my God, like now what do we do? <laughs> so it, it was Funny, funnily enough, it really started as like a project and a passion project and to be like, oh, is there a market? Like, will anybody buy this product like ever um, to like, okay, now we have like 
400 customers. We've raised like they're almost $30,000. Like, yeah, I was like, I was in over my head and I kind of like, I can, I can definitely say that I think like the cool thing about something like a crowdfunding platform like Kickstarter is it kind of gives you no choice, but to like spend your time on it then. Cause now all of a sudden you you're accountable to your backers. Um, and so, uh, I started spending more and more of my time just proportionately on that and, um, ended up going full-time on it in 2017. Wow. And then eventually, like, I don't remember exactly when that was, but the Nike, they, they had like a hijab as well, like an active wear job, right. And there, when was yeah, that so, on the timeline? Yeah. So, um, all these bigger brands actually launched their active wear hijab lines after we did. So, um, yeah, I, I remember being extremely like emotional and stressed out about it. I, you know, I remember like I wrote this blog post and I, you know, I was just like, oh my God, like Nike versus Sakoon. And um, I think even now looking back on it, I'm like, oh my gosh, drama. But, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we're a small business, like we're, a, we were a small business and, um, you know, I can even say like, even before, before we launched, like in the time post Kickstarter, where we got all this press and all this stuff, pre putting out any product into the world, we were reached out to by some of these really big brands. Um, even like Adidas reached out to us and was like, Hey, like, would you want to come and like talk to us about this? And I don't know, they were trying to, I, I don't know. I mean, it was just like interesting. because I think like everybody kind of saw us like as a little side project. And, um, I was just like, for me, all this information was like, you know, it was coming at me and I went into like sensory overload of like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is something. And, um, you know, fast forward five years and every single one of these brands has launched something, yeah. uh, in this, in this, in this vein, um, Adidas, Nike, I believe Under Armour, uh, Lululemon earlier this summer just launched theirs. Um, I think Reebok has, I'm not sure some of these brands may have, I'm, I don't know if they've done it continuously, but they've at least tried one one iteration of this product. Mm. Um, and it's been really cool to see, because now I can really say like five years ago, you know, I felt like I was a visionary then. And now five years have passed. And I'm like, I could see something in the market that I'm really confident that like others couldn't see at that time. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for better or for worse, like it, it, starting a business is never easy. Um, but I think for me, like, there was so much of my like personal and professional identity tied up in this project that like, you know, for me, it was like, I really put everything I had into it for, uh, for a long period of time. And, um, I think there's pros and cons to that, but I, it was overall, like those years of my life were extremely challenging, but also extremely rewarding because I think even just, you know, the messages that we would get from customers, you know, even though our product was far from perfect, you know, we would get messages from customers being like, you've thought about this. Like we can tell you've thought about this. And they would, they would tell us things similar to like what I experienced and felt that, Hey, we've tried all the other products in the market and nothing is as innovative or interesting as what you've put out there. And then they would tell us like, Hey, here are things that, you know, here, here are things that we'd like to see differently or here are improvements that you can make. And it was amazing because there are brands that die for that, like kind of insight from their customers um, and we were getting it without asking because these customers, you know, and, and when I think about myself as a problem solver, kind of going back to that first question that you asked, it's like, 
there's a joy that comes from solving someone's problem, especially when it's been your own problem, right? For me, every single prototype, every single sample that we ever got, like I was the first person to try it. And I was the first person to like, be like, Hey, this is what didn't work for me. And only after it worked for me to some level, would it go to our focus groups? Um, so there was, I think there's, there's a uniqueness to that, right? If you think about these bigger brands, like that are trying to solve for this, like there is just some designer who most likely doesn't wear hijab, who most likely, right, is just putting this product out there um, without much vetting. And um, I think the market now has even been open for like five years. Like we've been out of the game for a couple of years, like since COVID and there still isn't anything that's come out that that, that is very innovative in this space. Hmm, yeah, you know what I'm sensing is that this background and like coming from this perspective of nonprofit management, where we often think about what is the problem we're trying to solve, which is not the same in like the business context necessarily. It's more like I have an I often right. I have an idea and I'm just going to put it out there, not really thinking is there a market? What is you know talking to people, talking to potential customers. So it sounds like this background in coming from this problem solving nonprofit, um, what is the problem that I'm trying to solve perspective really added a lot of value to your experience and how you approached it. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's really true. Um, I do. I think I, I often also feel like you know, even when I was working in affordable housing, you know, we were working in a resource constrained environment. Um, right. And I think that, you know, there's so many things I, it's funny because I do think that like, as we get older, you know, whether it's in our career or personally, we rewrite stories, right. We're like, Oh yeah, of course this all makes sense. Of course my career, like I can say it's perfectly linear and it all ties together now, like 10 years in. Um, but I, I do feel like there are so many benefits to like having had my early, early career experience, right. Whether that's like sitting down and just being in the weeds of data and um, being in the weeds of like numbers for a long period of time, you know, in my early career in finance. And then, yeah, even working in affordable housing, just kind of being scrappy, right. Like how do you operate in a resource constrained environment? Um, you know, and I think that that is a really good skill to have as a startup, um, as a startup operator. Um, and then I think the other thing that, you know, I think about a lot is even just like developing work ethic. Like I mentioned, like I was working full time while in a night grad program. So there were nights where I'd come home at like 11 PM and be like dead exhausted and then still have to be at work the next day. And, um, I'm not like, like, in retrospect, I know that there were like elements of like burnout and stuff like that for sure. Um, and I'm not endorsing that, but I do think that for me, because I did it that way, um, you know, I did that so I could like get work experience and also pay for my grad school. So like, I, you know, I was funding my own grad school. I didn't have to take any loans or anything um, at that time. And I think what it did for me is like, when I really think about it is like, for me, when I was working in housing, I would come home and I was like looking for something else to do that was like, like passion, like that I felt passionate about. Um, and so it kind of like lended itself to like, you know, how do I like 
of course it's important to like have hobbies, but my hobby turned into my business. Right. Um, and I think like, even just like having that, like kind of work ethic and that, that like excitement that like, here's what I'm going to do during the day. And then I'm still going to use my mind at night, whatever that is for. Um, I think that's kind of like stayed with me throughout time. And, um, yeah, I think there's so many things that like, you're right, even from like approaching it from like a non-problems, uh, non-profit mindset, I think when you're in a program like Wagner, you're inherently trying to to solve problems and talk to people who aren't talked to or who aren't asked about their input. Um, and I think while Sukun is like in a lot of ways or was just like Adidas, a standard direct consumer business, I think what was interesting for me was more so that I got to solve problems and talk to talk to customers that had never been asked their preferences before. And you could just like hear it and see it on their, like you hear in their voice, you could see it in their, on their, on their face, like the joy of being asked, like, what do you need when you work out? Like, what is your experience like as somebody who covers in a workout space? Like, nope. I, I have never been asked that question, right? The first time I was asked that question was like by my like creative designer. So um, I think you're right. Is like, there's a lot of like bigger, like mindset, um, uh, mindset or like, I don't know what the right word is, but like, there's like a framework that I feel like I've, I've benefited from being able to carry from that part of my career into this part of my career that um, I think is just like, it, it makes my life and job more fun, but it also, I think, um, brings a lot more value to the, to the customers that I work with. Mm, Yeah. What are three things you learned from this experience of starting your own business? Oh man, that's rough. Uh, so many, like, do you mean like 300 things? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Three things. Um, it sounds really cliche, but I do think that, you know, cliches are there for a reason because they're often true, I think. And and I think, you know, you haven't really asked me about it, but I, I know you know this. So I, I transitioned out of Sukun full-time in 2020. Um, like a lot of other smaller brands, we hit some supply chain issues and we hadn't really, we were kind of like scaling up at that time. And um, yeah, 2020 was kind of going to be our make it or break it year, like even outside of the pandemic. And I think the pandemic just kind of like, highlighted some flaws in our production and and stuff like that. Um, So I think for, you know, the reason that I say that is because like, to me in 2020, like I failed myself. Like I really felt that for a very long time. Um, And I think anytime anybody, literally, if you say the word failure, like anyone in the world will be like failure. My association association for a long time is like the word Sukun. And I think my friends, my family, you know, I've done a lot of like no, it wasn't a failure. And, you know, like you learned so much on this stuff, but I think like, it really took me, like I've been off of Sukun for like two years and, and just running it super part time, like very minimally. Um, we've had like some orders come in and kind of just like closing out with our like three PL and kind of all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think for me that, that word failure is just kind of like reorienting my positioning around the word failure and like understanding that there's so many things that I, you know, there's so many sub lessons, like there's millions of them that I have learned because you, that are unique to me because of that experience. Um, 
and so I think, wait, sorry, can you repeat the question? I like what you learned from what I learned. Yeah. So I think for me, really, the thing is, is that like all these, like anything that feels like a failure, it really is like you have an, I guess you always have an opportunity to fail up is what I'm trying to say. Um, and it sounds really cliche and it sounds really corporate, but I, I do think it's true. Um, you know, over the past two years, I transitioned into uh, working at a marketing agency, at a digital marketing agency, and I had so much to learn while I was there. I, I was by no means a perfect <laughs> digital marketer. I mean, my company did an amazing job, like molding me and teaching me and giving me all these like technical skills that I didn't have before. Um, but I think something that I uniquely brought to the table over and over again while working at, at a digital marketing agency is that I always could see things from the other side. So I could always see things from the perspective of the client um, because the client was operating their own business. So, so many of my counterparts were way better than me even at digital marketing um, and digital marketing strategies. And it had been in the digital marketing space for longer, but I think because I've operated a business, I could be like, hey, client, like I understand what you're going through or please tell me what you're going through. Like what stressors do you have in terms of supply chain or hiring? Um, or legal or team, you know, whatever it is, like product development, quality control, whatever's on your mind, like I've been through it to some degree. Um, So I think that's like one really, really big thing is that things that feel like failures, um, if nothing else, they give you empathy for somebody else who's going through through the same thing. Um, I know you asked for three, but I think I'll just stick with that one because I think it's like a really big one and and it can really apply to um, really anything, anything that you're doing. yeah. Love it. Would you do it again? <laughs> um, yes, I, I would. You know, it's funny because now I'm back in like a more traditional workforce, if you will. And um, I do think that my brain and my body like through COVID, you know, between, between the whole pandemic uh, and also like even kind of like transitioning out of my business full time. I think there was a long time where I just like, turned my brain off and like just rest, you know, I was kind of, you know, obviously I was working, but like, I felt low on like passion. <laughs> um, but I think over the last couple of months, my, my like the startup side of my brain is like turning back on where I'm like, Oh wait, these are problems. Like these are, these are things that are like interesting, like sparking my interest again. Like in this, like, um, in the same way that I think like Sukun was. And, um, yeah, I think, to answer your question, I would. I think like the the biggest difference is, and I guess this kind of relates back to the previous question as well as, um, you know, something else that I've learned is like, you know, I, I've learned so much more about like how to set up a business and how to like do it in a way that prevents even like burnout for myself. And I think the biggest difference of how I might start a business now is like kind of having a better strategic plan and having a better um kind of like just having a better plan for like resources, whether that's like time, energy, um, and like people around me. Um, you know, I think Sukun was kind of this classic, classic example of like really like founder grit, hustle mentality, like super capital constrained, super time constrained. Um, and we were like living in this era of like the girl boss and blah, like, right, blah, blah. To me, like the girl boss is dead, like no need to burn out, like no thank you. Um, I think running a business will always be challenging for sure. Uh, but I do think that there are ways, you know, 
at that time, I really, you know, I was, I was in my mid twenties when I started Sukuna and it's like, I really had no idea what I didn't know. Now I have a little bit more of an idea of what I didn't know. And so based on that, I would kind of like set up the structure, I think a bit differently. Do you have any advice for people who want to start their own business? Who oh have an idea? Tons, 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 tons of advice. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, you mentioned this early, earlier, Sophia, but I think a lot of people start businesses because it's just a good idea. And look, there's tons of value in that and people make a lot of money on that. Mm. I do think that. Um, but I think personally, I mean, this is my advice, but like, I think it is way easier to start a business uh, for a, a service or a product that you care about personally. Mm. Um, I think when the going gets tough, that's really the only thing that's going to keep you happy. Um, I think in my hardest times with Sukoon, like, you know, I was able to go back and just look at messages that like our customers were writing in about that impact. And maybe that's just me. Maybe it is because of like, my training and how I approach these things, but like, you know, we have customers that like have been with us even through Kickstarter and like, we haven't put out a million items, but like they've seen iterations of each collection. And even the messages we got, like in our last collection, we're like, oh my gosh, this is such a huge improvement. Like, this is amazing. Like, can't wait for the next round, like stuff like that, you know? And I think like, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I would screenshot like everything good that would come in and just have like a folder on my desktop and just like put it in there. And then on bad days, I would like read through that. Right. Um, and so I think that's kind of my biggest thing is like, if you can, if you have the passion and or the privilege to start a business, if you can do that in a way um, that taps into your unique passion or uniquely the way that you see the world, I think it's always going to be um, a more incredible and impactful journey for yourself. And, you know, even as I'm saying that, I recognize that like that's selfish, right? Like it's like, mm, you want to, it's a little bit narcissistic because you're like, mm, I'm going to start a business that like is something about me. Um, but I think the beautiful thing in that is that you can see the, you can see the outcome of that in your brand and in your products. Um, you know, I really, again, like I think for Sukoon, like so much of my personal and professional identity was wrapped into this brand um, and I think, again, I do think that there's pros and cons to that, but like, you know, people always say like business isn't personal. Like for me, business was the most personal thing that there was, right. It was, it was everything. It was like, so, you know, all of my creativity, all of my story type, all of my storytelling, all this unique way that I saw the world all of a sudden had a visual rep representation. Um, and there's nothing that, like, there are certain like you know, photo shoots that we did and certain moments I remember that are so impactful to me. And there's, I'm so proud of them because it was something that was like imagined in my brain. And now it, there's a visual representation of it. And if you don't care about what that thing is, it's not going to, you're not giving it the chance to like impact you. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my advice is like, go like dig into your passions and, and, um, create something from your passion. Um, and you'll really be able to what, regardless of how your business goes, whether you make a billion dollars or whether it sunsets before you've made any profit, you'll have, uh, I think, a better experience. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. That was really inspiring as always. There's a couple of things that I probably will remember for the rest of my life that you shared. Um, I remember, I, I do want to share that with people. There was one thing also, I feel like you, you probably learned a lot about fabric. Um, and I remember you sharing kind of like, go to the store and if you like, like see a piece of clothing that you like, check what fabric it is made of. Um, I kind of like, my mom would also do that, but it's I still think about you sometimes when I do that I'm like yeah she has said like you should do that and if it has some plastic in it don't don't buy it you know yeah thank you yeah I think like um even stuff like that I think that that's the kind of stuff that stick, stuck with me a lot I mean we had a huge ethical supply chain sustainability component um which I am still most proud of I think like I if nothing else I think I learned so much the way that I consume in this world is so different mm. because of our brand. Um, and I know that that's the case for consumers as well. And um, that's something that I think about. I, I still, you know, I learned a lot that that's not even just from me. I learned a lot from my designer who had a focus in sustainability um, and sustainable fibers. Um, but, you know, for me, I think like 10 times about anything before I get rid of it, you know, there's permanent habit changes that I have. Like, um, I recently started using this service called Four Four Days, and they send you like a plastic. Uh, they send you like a mailer, um, and it's a take back program. And so they recycle anything that you have that's like can't be donated to Goodwill or anything like that. And I think stuff like that, it's you know, even just for one person, it it makes a huge difference in a lifetime of of shopping or a lifetime of owning things. How we dispose of those things and how we interact with. Um, creating a circular economy. So yeah, I really appreciate that you said that because I think um, it's such a, for any business owner, I think it is really important when we're making physical goods to continue to think about the impact that we're having, mm -hmm. um, especially given, you know, everything that has ha been happening with climate change and everything like that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And then another thing I remember, which is also a really good one. So I want to share that one too. You had like a day every week where you wouldn't spend money. Like you said, like you would buy like groceries and stuff and eat, but it was kind of like your day where you wouldn't like buy any things that, you know, kind of like consumerism. Um, I remember that too. I was like, I love that. Yeah. Wow. I'm impressed that you remember that. Yeah. I think, uh, Yeah, there, I I still I don't do it every week. I do it like once a month now. <laughs> <laughs> you still do it, um, but I do do that. There are that I do try and keep that up. Um, and I the other thing that you know I do is like for every like for everything that I buy, especially in the apparel world, like for everything I buy, I have to like get rid of two things. Um, and I think what that does for me is that like, oftentimes I can't think of two things to get rid of, which means that I like, don't buy the thing. Um, I often end up returning it. And so I think that's also something that, um, I started to think about a lot more, like when I started working on Sukun of just like, what happened, like we, not only what happens to things when we get rid of them, but like, do we need those things? Right. And I think my, my wardrobe has become so much more streamlined because I just wear all the things that I buy and that I don't like really, I realize I don't really need those other things. So 
Mm, I love that. So there's a lot of wisdom here for everybody listening. Telling <laughs> you the wisdom of the, the old millennial. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was lovely to catch up with you. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sophia on Earth, where we talk about what it means to be human. If you want to dive deeper, leading from your feminine essence in your relationships and in business, I would love to hear from you and support you on your journey. You can find all of my one-on-one -on -one coaching offers on my website at sophiaonearth.com or feel free to just reach out to me via Instagram at sophiaonearth. Once again, thank you so much for listening, sending you so much love.